Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Welcome, everyone, to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I am your host, journalist, author, and researcher of weird things, Aaron Sagers. And my guest today is Dr. Avi Loeb, a professor of science at Harvard University, is the director of the Institute of Theory and Computation at Harvard. Uh, Dr. Loeb has written eight books, including most recently, Extraterrestrial, in 2022 and interstellar in 2023 and has written more than a thousand papers uh, on a wide range of topics including black holes the first stars the search for extraterrestrial life and the future of the universe he is also the head of the galileo project more specifically the galileo project for the systematic scientific search for evidence of extraterrestrial technological artifacts this was launched in 2021 with the goal of bringing the search for extraterrestrial technological signatures or ETCs, extraterrestrial technological civilizations from accidental or anecdotal observations and legends to the mainstream of transparent, validated, and systematic scientific research. So without further ado, let me welcome him in. Dr. Avi Loeb, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be speaking with you. And I've certainly been following your look, even, your work, even before the Galileo Project. And the Galileo Project seems like it's just taken just this research by storm in the year and a half since it launched. I, I want to get into that, but I actually want to begin by backtracking a little bit. I know you've written about this in the past, but... For the folks that are out there, could you talk a little bit about your fascination with the cosmos as a boy on a farm, if I recall, and just sort of the early roots of this pursuit and passion of yours? Yeah, so if you ask people who know me, um, uh, they will tell you that I haven't changed much since the time I was a kid. That I was, I grew up on a farm, very much connected to nature, and uh, I treat life as a learning experience. So. That means two things. Uh, one, that we should be modest, uh, not arrogant in terms of what we think about reality. We should learn from experience, learn from evidence, learn from data that we collect. Because as a kid, I used to sit at the dinner table and ask a difficult question, and the adults in the room would uh, either dismiss the question because they didn't know the answer or invent a storyline. And that's a very common practice of adults pretending they know more than they actually do. And uh, I decided not to surrender to that, basically become a scientist and figure it out myself, not listen to the gospel. So that's the first thing that characterizes me. And the second is I want to learn it from from nature. And 
Um, you know, and I don't have any uh, account on social media. I don't care how many likes I get. And it's really not about me. It's about, um, you know, figuring out uh, the reality that we all share. And, you know, it's our cosmic neighborhood. Uh, do we have any neighbors? That's the biggest question because uh, uh, the cosmologist Steven Weinberg, who got the Nobel Prize in physics, uh, suggested at the end of his book, uh, the first three minutes, that um, the more we learn about the universe, the more it appears to be pointless to us. And I say, well, it appears pointless as long as you don't find a partner, because we know from our private lives that when you find a partner, it gives a meaning to your existence and a goal. And my guess is once we find even just a technological device that was manufactured by an extraterrestrial civilization, it will change everything. It would mean that there was someone else uh, that, that might have been smarter than us, uh, another kid in our class of intelligent civilization that was smarter than us and that we can learn from it. Uh, we can import these technologies to Earth and make a lot of money out of them. We could have new aspirations for space based on what we encounter. And I see that more as a great benefit to the future of humanity, unlike uh, what Stephen Hawking was arguing, that we should be worried about the invaders uh, based on the history of humans going to various places, the new world and bringing disease. I don't think we will encounter a biological creature, biological creatures because uh, the journey takes so long, millions of years or maybe even billions. And, uh, you know, it's not suited for biological creatures. And um, it makes much more sense to send the artificial intelligence astronauts. I call them AI astronauts. So that's my expectation for what we might see. Nothing to do with Star Trek, but actually just a few hours ago, I congratulated the uh, director of uh, Star Trek from 1966. He's turning uh, 100 years old on May 1st this year. And I told him that uh, we're trying to uh, distinguish between the scripts of uh, uh, his uh, series, uh, and Star Trek, and and what reality shows. And it's basically trying to distinguish between science fiction and science. There is a big difference. Reality may be more imaginative, more exciting. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you've said a lot there that I'm, I'm going to revisit throughout the course of this because there's so much material there. But one, one clarification is I noticed you're using past tense as far as these techno signatures and these technological artifacts, are you of the opinion that whatever we encounter will be of a past civilization? Yes. I mean, it's like searching for packages in our mailbox or our backyard. Um, they could have been sent long time ago. They just keep accumulating. And, um, and in fact, the senders may not be around anymore. So let me give you a scenario. Um, you know, most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And uh, just imagine starting the technological clock billions of years ago for them. Um, now, the sun within a billion years will become so bright that uh, the Earth will go uh, through um, a, a warming episode, uh, sort of like a greenhouse effect, and uh, all the oceans will be boiled off the surface of Earth. So we will not be able to sustain the current life that we have on Earth. So just imagine another civilization that had to go through that because they existed billions of years before us. And their star became 
much brighter billions of years ago. Uh, they obviously cried for help. We didn't listen because we weren't around. And uh, by now they're dead. So um, they could have sent a lot of uh, spacecraft in the meantime. Uh, we sent five of them to interstellar space, uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. And that's only for over half a century. So just think how many we could send over a billion years. Uh, and then uh, I calculated that if uh, we were to decide to listen to John Lennon and imagine all the people living in peace and allocate the $2 trillion a year we currently allocate to military budgets, uh, dedicate that to space exploration, we could send a probe to every star in the Milky Way galaxy by the end of this century. So there will be tens of billions of probes that we can send towards stars. And if another civilization did that already, you know, the probes may be next to us. So I would argue that it's arrogant to believe that we are alone, that we are the smartest, there is nothing out there. And moreover, like the SETI community is arguing, there, sh there should be a ban on any discussion on object technological objects from extraterrestrial civilizations that are visiting near Earth. They have a ban on that. And I ask myself, how is that possible? Uh, that is similar to, you know, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. We call it dark matter. And there are a number of possibilities. One of them is it's an axion, a very lightweight particle. Another one is a massive particle, and it's a weakly interacting massive particle. Now imagine those people trying to detect weakly interacting massive particles uh, using the Large Hadron Collider by smashing protons at high energies. Imagine them deciding not to allow any discussion about the axions as dark matter in their conferences, which is pretty much what the SETI community is doing. They base their research on radio signals from extraterrestrials. And by the way, they did it for 70 years, haven't found anything. Okay, if they had something, I would say, okay, but they haven't found it for 70 years and they ban a discussion about a completely alternative method of looking for technosignature, which yeah. is to search the vicinity of Earth for technological objects, which is just like checking our mailbox. You know, if you go to your backyard, most of the time you find those rocks that you are familiar with. That's These are the asteroids, the comets in the solar system. That's our backyard. But every now and then you see a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. And I say, if you don't search, obviously we'll not find, but just banning any discussion about the possibility that a tennis ball will be in your backyard makes zero sense. Yeah, and, and certainly with SETI, yes, you know, they've been listening for radio signals and, you know, putting an ear out to to uh, the galaxy. Uh, meanwhile, you're looking for these techno signatures. Are they, is it limited to actual physical structures or are you also looking for evidence of energy signatures or the possibility of other civilizations having i don't know pollution and things like that well first i should say the seti approach is similar to waiting for a phone call if there is nobody active at the moment you're waiting you won't hear anything and their signals may have been a billion years ago now they're a billion light years away so we can't really detect it uh, and it's all a matter of being at the right time. But those packages that were sent in our direction, for example, uh, uh, chemical rockets that we send out, 
they move at a speed that is 10 times smaller than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy. So they can't escape. They keep accumulating, just like plastic in the ocean. And uh, therefore, you know, we, we will find an inventory of all the probes that were sent in the past. Uh, and as to the nature of those probes, we don't know what they are, and that's why it's a learning experience. But the way to find them is not to imagine what they are, but simply to exclude things that we are familiar with. Just to give you an example, the first interstellar object was reported in 2017, Oumuamua, uh, right. uh, size of a football field, didn't look like uh, an asteroid. It uh, was most likely flat, uh, had an extreme shape. So they, people said, oh, it's a comet. But then there was no cometary tail, no coma, nothing. So then it was not a comet. So what is it? But then it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious, there was non-gravitational acceleration. So that sounds like a comet, but it doesn't look like a comet. So what is it? And now some people say, well, maybe it's a comet with a cometary tail that is not visible to us, which is just like uh, the tale of Hans Christian Andersen, where the kid says, the emperor has no clothes. But he, in this case, uh, Oumuamua has no cometary tail. And I'm that kid, by the way. Uh, and uh, everyone around me is saying, oh, no, it has a beautiful set of clothes. They are just invisible to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, this is an example um, of something we didn't expect. It doesn't look like a rock from the solar system. Another example are the two meteors that we discovered with my student, Amir Siraj, that had material strength that is far greater than all the space rocks from the solar system, all the meteors in the catalog that NASA compiled, 272 of them. So um, we say that those interstellar meteors may be artificial, and we are going on an expedition to re uh, retrieve the fragments of the first interstellar meteor from 2014. Uh, we will do that in summer 2023, this summer. And the hope is that we will be able to tell the difference. Uh, if we find fragments, to differentiate between a natural object that came from an environment very different than the solar system or an artificial object like a spacecraft. So that's another example. But with respect to unidentified aerial phenomena that the government talks about, there you are just looking for something that doesn't look like a natural object, a bird, a bug, uh, based on the way it looks, based on the way it moves. Um, and also doesn't look like a human-made object, like a, a drone, uh, a, an airplane, or a balloon. Um, and if we get good enough data on it, it appears to be technological, but not from this Earth, because we pretty much know the limitations of our technologies. And and you're, just to backtrack a little bit, when you're talking about Oumuamua, this would be the first interstellar object, and you believed it was this light sail of artificial origin. And then following up to that, recently, last month, uh, there was a peer-reviewed study by researchers at Berkeley, UC Berkeley and Cornell, saying that it was simply a comet, and that's that's what you disagree with. And then meanwhile, where you and your student are going to research, you raised more than a million dollars for this 10-day research um, into the meteor that impacted off the coast of Papua New Guinea, if if you do, based on the findings of this, and I know you're going to have to very much dig deep at the the ocean bed, ocean floor to uh, to pull up some of this, this would be potentially the first interstellar object to land on planet Earth. 
not to learn, but to be identified. I identify. And, and studied. Yeah, indeed. I should say about this paper that appeared in Nature that the a day after it appeared, uh, we found a mistake in the right. calculation. Uh, they basically forgot about a term that was a million times bigger than the terms they included in the energy conservation equation. And we pointed it out in a paper that uh, we posted the day later. And uh, I also communicated that to science journalists, 14 of them that reported about the Nature paper, and asked them to just in include a footnote saying that there was a mistake, according to me and my colleague, Thim Huang. But uh, some of them said, we don't want to confuse our readers. And I found that strange because in politics, we often argue that you know, you have to be rational, you have to pay attention to evidence, and politicians don't do that. Well, if science journalists do not do that and do not inform the public in order not to confuse the, the public by uh, scientific uh, calculations, that's worrisome, I would argue. Uh, because our paper was posted, they could have referred to it and just said, Avi Loeb says. They don't need to adapt that view. They just need to say that. And uh, some of them decline from doing that. It, it's part of their duty to be honest and straightforward. Because science is work in progress and people can make mistakes and you can demonstrate that it's mistakes. It's not a matter of opinion. We're not talking about politics where two people can have opposite opinions and we will not be able to, to tell who is correct and who is not. In science, if someone makes a mistake in a calculation, you can show that. And if they have no answer, you can show that. And our paper was out for a few weeks now, and there was no counter argument. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if there was an obvious way for the authors to dispute our point, they would have mentioned that, obviously. Okay. So uh, we think, you know, based on our uh, calculation, that this model of the Oumuamua being a water hydrogen iceberg is not tenable because they made this mis mis mistake of the surface temperature. So uh, that brings up, uh, once again, the puzzle about what Oumuamua was, because those who want to claim that it was a comment and insist on that, and in fact, one of the co-authors of this Nature paper was telling me six months earlier that he wrote a review paper about the comet Oumuamua. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, the comet Oumuamua. We both know it was not a comet. And he said back then, six months ago, he said, well, I have this theory that it was a comet when we didn't look at it. It, it showed a cometary tail. And when we looked at it, it didn't show a cometary tail. So I said, well, it's just like going to the zoo and seeing an elephant and insisting that it's a zebra, which shows its uh, stripes when we look away. How can that be the view of a person, a mainstream researcher, scientist, who writes a, an authoritative review about an object that looks unusual, but yet wants to call it a comet, just so that anyone reading this review would feel comfortable, would say, oh, he calls it a comet, therefore, you know, we have nothing to worry about. It's, it's just a normal object. So it just shows you how the sausage is made in science, at least in this case, even if it's clearly not a comet of a type that we've seen before, people will argue that it is a comet of a type that we've never seen before. And moreover, its cometary tail is invisible. And, you know, I'm just playing the kid who says, you know, we don't see a cometary tail. It's not a comet. Why is that so, so difficult to accept? Is that reticence to acknowledge 
the correction that you posted or that um, entrenched mindset about it, you know, being a comet or, uh, you know, various other uh, theories out there about this stuff. Is that reflective more of the scientific community's ongoing stigma towards the research of UAP and interstellar objects, or is that more of a systemic issue within the scientific community? I think it's systemic because um, at the same time, what you see are the, is the mainstream of theoretical physics, which is speculating far more than this. They're talking about extra dimensions, the multiverse, things that will not be even testable in, the, in their lifetime. And they talk about it as if they're doing their job as physicists, whereas physics is all about testing your ideas against data, against experiments, against evidence. And what I'm saying, look, here is an object that based on the data we have looks weird. Let's collect more data on objects like it. And people mm -hmm. are going against me while allowing for 40 years a community of thousands of people to represent the mainstream in fundamental physics, arguing about extra dimensions that we've never detected, about supersymmetry, which was not confirmed in the Large Hadron Collider, in the parameter space in which it was suggested. And on that, I will give you an anecdote. I was having breakfast with one of those string theorists who worked on supersymmetry for many years, and I asked him, what is your most celebrated contribution to physics? because he is now late in his career. And he said, well, it's a paper that I wrote about supersymmetry. And I, you know, and I said, well, what about the fact that it was not observed by the Large Hadron Collider? It's now ruled out in the original parameter space. And it was not even on his radar. And he basically says, oh, yeah, maybe it will be detected in the future. Now, let me give you a, a, a similar situation. A, another example, the Lubavitch community in Brooklyn, Crown Heights was arguing for decades that its rabbi is the Messiah. And when he dies, he will go to Jerusalem. So they built uh, an apartment identical to the apartment he has in Brooklyn so that he would find the toilets easily when he goes to Jerusalem after he dies. And so you have a replica of the Brooklyn apartment. Now he died. That's an empirical fact identical to the fact that supersymmetry was not found by the Large Hadron Collider. What did the religious community say about it? They said, we just have to wait. He might come later. Yeah. How different is that from the response of my colleague, string theorists, who said, you know, string theory must be right. Uh, supersymmetry must be right. We just have to wait. I don't see a difference. The only difference between physics and the rest is that it's supposed to be tested. And when the test is done, you have to give up on an idea that you know doesn't pass through the guillotine of data. Okay? So if the head is chopped off, you can mourn the loss of this idea, but move on. And if you don't do the test, Obviously, you can always claim and celebrate that you are right, but that's not physics. And with respect to Oumuamua, it was all, you know, my interest in the subject was all based on data, okay? And three years later, I should emphasize that, there was another object discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii 
was given the name 2020SO, discovered in September 2020. It was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary evaporation whatsoever. And then a few weeks later, the astronomers realized it's a rocket booster that was launched by NASA 1966, the year that Star Trek was uh, established. And we know that it's artificial. We know that it had thin walls. That's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. We know that it was made of stainless steel, and that's why it didn't evaporate. Okay? Mm -hmm. So here is an example of an object that behaved like Oumuamua, and it was artificial because we made it. And the question is, who made Oumuamua? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and it, it also sounds like, and please correct me if I'm uh, if I'm uh, misinterpreting your words, but it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is we should be looking for the baseball in our backyard, whereas some theoretical physicists are looking for the uh, the needle in the haystack a continent over. <laughs> no, I, sh- I have a, a different uh, metaphor for that. Imagine a plumber, okay? And you tell the plumber, I need the toilet to be fixed at my in my home. And the plumber says, it's too difficult. I can't do it. So then you say, okay, what about this pipe that broke? Can you fix it? The plumber says, no, it's really too difficult. And then the plumber says, you know what? If you put these goggles on your head and visit the metaverse, then in the metaverse, I'm an extremely good plumber. I fix everything. So I ask you, will you pay this plumber just because in the metaverse, He's able to solve all the problems. In the same way, string theorists say, imagine extra dimensions. In those dimensions, we are able to solve some problems. But when you ask us to tell you what was there before the Big Bang, that's too difficult. Mm -hmm. When you ask us what happens inside a black hole, that's too difficult. If you ask us what is the origin of the cosmological constant, the vacuum energy density in the universe, Actually, we don't know because there are 10 to the power 500 possible values. In fact, let's just argue that there are 10 to the 500 possible values. And then we live in a region that allows us to exist. This is their popular view. Basically saying we can't predict it, but we can say that there are so many possibilities that we would be in one of them that allows us to exist. As if that is an explanation in favor of string theory or the uh, the multiverse. Uh, And so I say something is wrong here. If someone wants me to put goggles and only there identify the profession of that person being a plumber or being a physicist, uh, only if I imagine something about a virtual reality that I don't experience in any experiment, then I don't treat that person as a plumber. Yeah. Uh, Certainly not a plumber that I choose to hire maybe one i'd like to share a beer with at the bar but not <laughs> but but you know let me ask you within uh and I, I realize different government bodies are doing different things but within the u.s uh there's the 
the DOD's All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Arrow, almost spells my name, Aaron. Uh, we have NASA's nine-month study. We also have these scientific and civilian organizations uh, organizations that are looking into uh, anomalous phenomena and whatnot. We have NASA conducting a nine-month study. The American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics is doing the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Integration and Outreach Committee, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, UAPX, and of course, Galileo. Why is it important? Why is this pursuit important to be led by academia and civilian organizations as opposed to government bodies? Or is there a need for both? Well, first, let me explain. It's only the Galileo Project. That's the only one which is building observatories that are getting new data. Right. You know, in a matter of months, we will have more data that was ever reported by all UAP reports. Now, you have committees, you have organizations that say, oh, the government collected some data. Oh, civilians reported from their cell phones some data. Let's build an organization or a committee of people sitting around the table, not doing any work in collecting new data, just talking about what other people obtained with their data. Okay, that's what everything else is. Everything else is talking about the past. It's talking about things that are hidden from view or things that are in view but are not of good quality, like data that is blurry, inconclusive. Let's continue to talk about this forever. Let's have a committee of, uh, just to give you an example, there is a recent organization, I will not get into the detail, but their representative was featured in a political article. I checked out this representative. What does he do for a living? What is his expertise, his credentials? Turns out they, they are in real estate. Okay, so a new organization, very flashy website, claiming we will collect all the data that was ever obtained by citizens and maybe by government even, and we want the attention of everyone. And we will discuss, make, make, assemble this data into a huge data set. The person in charge of the data has credentials in real estate. Yeah. So you can't say, okay, there is this organization, there is the Galileo project, there is the NASA thing, there is the... All of these are committees that are not collecting new data. You, right. There is, they are not even in the same place. I'll tell you why, because to have a new observatory that collects new data, you have to dedicate a lot of effort. It's a lot of work. It took a year and a half for the Galileo project team to select the instrumentation that we need to put together, put it together in the form of an observatory that is currently functioning 24 seven and monitoring the entire sky in the infrared, optical, radio, and audio, and analyzing this data 24 seven with artificial intelligence algorithms. So to do that is a lot of work and expertise and training and education. But if someone is a real estate uh, expert, that person can say whatever he wants right. and sit on a committee and not only sit on the committee, but lead the committee that says, I look at data that other people collected. So you have to understand that there is a difference between soccer players and commentators sitting on the bench and saying to the soccer players, 
you should play this way or that way. And my opinion is that there was a penalty here, but not there. And in fact, you didn't play right. And some other people played a century ago this way and doing history, statistics and all kinds of things on what the players on the field are doing. But it's not at all like being a soccer player. Just like movie critics are nothing like being a film director and creating something from nothing. Okay, the film director is creating something from nothing. The critics are looking at the something that the film uh, producer produced and expressing their opinion. So all these committees that you are talking about, they're expressing their opinion on data that they did not collect. Mm -hmm. The Galileo project is collecting new data. That's a completely different endeavor. And it's the first time that something like that is done. And why can it be done? Because there were donors that provided funds to my research account at Harvard that allowed me to establish such a scientific project. Now, at the same time, NASA decided, and that's because I approached them. I approached them at the same time, just a month before I established the Galileo project, I contacted Thomas Zurbuchen, the head of science at NASA. And I said, look, your boss, Bill Nelson, is really interested in this subject. He was making comments on CNN about unidentified objects and saying that scientists should get engaged. So I told Thomas Zurbuch and I said, I'm happy to help you get engaged if you want. He never got back to me. I wrote a, a white paper, sent it to him. He never got back to me. He established a committee that will evaluate whether NASA needs to invest in this uh, study, in this research. And when I asked why didn't you tell me about this committee? I, after all, I, I'm the one to suggest it in the first place. I got the reply, well, you since then you established the Galileo project. Therefore, you have a conflict of interest from being on this committee. Okay, so that's the NASA committee for you. And it's 100K that they gave to a group of people on a committee to decide if NASA should invest any more funds in that research. That's what NASA did so far. And then you have all these other organizations which are talking about data assembled by citizens, data assembled by government, but uh, trying to press the government to declassify data. The approach of the Galileo project is completely different. I don't want to press the government to release any uh, classified data because the sky is not classified. All I need is to collect the same or even better data on the sky, which is right. the approach of astronomers. Except the astronomers, there was never an observatory that is fit for this task because astronomers focus on distant sources of light and on small fields of view and they if something goes overhead they ignore it and and as you establish more observatories for galileo project we'll be able to collect even more data which is exactly. very exciting the now let me shift gears a little bit um as we wind down on time but uh you are going to be attending, speaking at this Contact in the Desert event on June 2nd to 4th in Indian Wells, California. And I was kind of curious, first off, if you could tell us a little bit about the topic you'll be speaking on, but also from the perspective of a scientist and an academic, why is it worthwhile for you to attend an event such as this that'd be open to the public but let's also face it, certain elements of the public would look at this as kind of fringy and, uh, you know, crackpot, you know, and I'm not saying that, but we certainly know that there's still some of that stigma. So why is that important for you as a scientist and an academic to attend this event? Well, my goal is to educate 
the two sides. One is, as we were discussing, the scientific community about how science should be done, because right. very often they forget that uh, it's all through collection of evidence and data. And I'm not saying going in random directions, but when you have anomalies of the type that the interstellar objects show, of the type that the government identifies in, in their report on unidentified aerial phenomena, it's the duty of scientists to bring clarity uh, by collecting more data and figuring out what these anomalies are. What do they represent? Do they represent something new or is it just bad data? And you know that's what uh, my goal is with respect to the scientific community, basically show how clarity is brought to a subject that was resisted for so many years. And you know it was a self-fulfilling prophecy or a circular argument to say that data is not good enough because if you are not seeking new evidence, you will never find it. I say, I mean, people quote Carl Sagan as saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. You have to search in order to find it. So that's my message to the scientific community. And then to the other, the fringe or, or the public that um, uh, talks about it without um, seeking, again, scientific evidence. There are believers and there are skeptics out there, and I get messages from both camps every day. And my point is, you don't need to uh, have a storyline, a narrative, before data is obtained. People prefer to believe in a storyline, and then they belong to a tribe. Just like in politics, you get polarization with people on opposite sides without good evidence. But in science, there is a way to bring them together, which is if the evidence is good enough so that it's not disputable, if we resolve a, an object that has screws and bolts on it, then it's clearly not a bird. And if it maneuvers in, in ways that cannot be explained by our human-made technologies, everyone would agree that it came from outside of this earth, depending on what it does. So my point is, here is a method for bringing people together, which is to collect evidence. <laughs> Rather than, it's not politics. Yesterday I was interviewed on a podcast where someone said, well, why not rely on people arguing? And I said, well, look at what happens in politics. There, was, there will never be an agreement. It will just, I mean, people even use violence against each other when they disagree in politics. And so my point is that science brings a new way of bridging the gap between opinions of people. You don't need to express an opinion. You just need to help me collect evidence and data from instruments, not from people. I don't want to ask people what do they think. That's not the relevant uh, thing, measure here. What we want is data from instruments that is repeatable, reproducible, and is beyond any reasonable doubt, and then everyone will come together if we mm -hmm. find it. So we very much hope to find something in the expedition uh, to the Pacific Ocean, uh, and if not, through the cameras of the Galileo Project. Mm -hmm. And I, and I really appreciate that uh, listening to you speak, it's you really reflect the, for me, the pure distillation of scientific pursuit, which is being curious, asking questions and taking risks and collecting the data instead of beginning with a preconceived uh, idea. Exactly. Uh, so exactly. I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and amazingly, this is the approach of a kid. Yes. So the approach of a kid is much more mature than the approach that adults often take when pretending that they know something they don't really know. It, uh, kind of a, one of the final questions I have is kind of seven years ago this month, 
Stephen Hawking made his final visit to the United States before passing away in 2018, and he attended the inauguration of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University, and he visited your home, and you hosted him for a dinner, and your, I believe, 19-year-old daughter, who was 12 at the time, gave a presentation at school about Hawking. I just was curious uh, if you could reflect on that and talk about the power of someone like Hawking who, who his work was not only within science, but also within media. And he was really important to the study of astrophysics, astrophysics. Just could you reflect on that? And even any anecdotes about, you know, your daughter meeting him and then giving a presentation on him. Well, he, he was a remarkable person uh, because uh, anyone else would have been depressed by knowing that, uh, you know, you cannot move a muscle and how can you live through life with this uh, um, you know uh, lack of ability to to do the elementary things that we do every day and um, he was very much dependent on people helping him physically speaking um, and what was remarkable about him is uh, that he represents what being a human is and I talk about it in my next book, uh, Interstellar, uh, that is about to come out uh, in August 2023. Um, because basically, he shows that you can strip all the physical from a human being and still maintain a full human uh, behind it. And you know, that has implications if you think about artificial intelligence because. You know, without a robot looking like a person, uh, a, a, an AI system like GPT-5 will just be about the mental uh, interactions that it has with humans, and which was pretty much what Hawking was about at the end of, of his life. And, and the fact that he maintained this optimism, there was one evening during his visit where he uh, said uh, after one of the meetings, he said, I'm bored. Why don't we go to the hotel bar and have some fun? You know, someone maintaining this vitality, even though he was so dependent on the nurses that uh, uh, accompanied him. And, um, you know, he ate everything that my wife uh, gave him uh, for Passover. Uh, he's not, he was not Jewish, but nevertheless, uh, uh, attended the celebration and it was really a, a fun person to be around. Uh, and also looking at the big picture, you know, the fact that he cared about humanity so much. The one thing I disagree with him is uh, his opinion that if we encounter extraterrestrials or if he, he basically argued that we should not broadcast our existence because of what happened to the indigenous tribes in the new world uh, when the European invaders came. Uh, and first of all, my point is, uh, you cannot, you know, it, it's most likely that we will not encounter biological creatures uh, from interstellar space because they won't survive the journey. It's most likely ga technological gadgets. So uh, I don't think they will bring any disease that will kill us. Okay, like the case of those uh, indigenous tribes. But um, uh, moreover, I do believe I, I'm an optimist. I believe that we can learn from them. And the benefits are far greater than the risks for our existence. And that's simply because we had our science and technology for a century, and they may have had millions of years or billions of years. And 
And in terms of the fittest surviving in interstellar space, I believe that being less aggressive and less militant uh, is a recipe for long-term survival because you don't engage in disputes that uh, bruise you and uh, could uh, uh, shorten your lifespan. So my guess is if we ever encounter, and I very much hope that it will happen in the coming years uh, through the research I'm doing, if we encounter a device that uh, was manufactured by an extraterrestrial technological civilization, we will benefit greatly from that encounter. And it's moreover important for us to adapt to the cosmic neighborhood that we live in so that we can. it will change our aspirations for space. It will change uh, the view we have of our role uh, you know, in the universe and what we aim to accomplish. And so I think it will be the biggest discovery ever made. And uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to ignore that possibility, you know, and, and, and not search for objects near Earth, given that the first ones that we discovered over the past decade that came from outside the solar system appeared weird. So to me, that says, let's continue in studying them. Well, and finally, just from the perspective of someone that is looking out there as part of the Galileo project in your entire career, you've mentioned Star Trek a couple times. So do you get enjoyment out of speculative, speculative fiction and science fiction? No, um, I don't. I didn't say that to the creator of Star Trek this morning, but uh, I enjoy science. Okay. And I should tell you that there were uh, just a week ago, 25 filmmakers and producers approached me to do a documentary about my research. 25 in one week. And uh, there was also a playwright who contacted me and uh, with uh, uh, through an email with the title Avi Loeb on Broadway. And I thought it's uh, April Fool's Day joke. So, but it, because it was a few days before April 1st and, but the, uh, he attached um, a couple of photographs, one with uh, Barbara Streisand, the other one with Dick Van Dyke from uh, Mary Poppins. And, uh, and those photos had the serial number from his cell phone. So it, it was clear to me that it's real. And since then, he started writing the play. Wow. Okay. We'll stay tuned on that one. And uh, and also, when your book, Interstellar, comes out, please let us know and love to chat with you again. But uh, my guest has been Dr. Avi Loeb of Harvard's Galileo Project, who will also be appearing at the Contact in the Desert event this coming June 2023. Three. And Dr. Loeb, thank you so very much for your time. Again, it has been a privilege speaking with you and I look forward to doing it again. And for everybody out there that's watching and listening, this has been Talking Strange. If you have stories you'd like to share, email us at talkingstrange at denofgeek.com. I'm Aaron Sagers. And until next time, be kind and stay curious. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. 
for more paranormal pop culture content.